Bom bom bits, a bowl full of chips. Bom bom bits, with Chappy and Pip. Bom bom bits, two young brothers. Bom bom bits, talking college football. Bom bom bits, and life and humor. And some funny ass clips. So relax and unwind with a bowl full of chips. Welcome back, college football fans. Hope life finds you in good shape today. Hope you had a great Labor Day weekend, enjoyed yourself, allowed time to refresh, and most importantly, we hope you got your dose of college football. Five days. Ah, it was glorious. You are listening live to a bowl full of chips. Well, kind of. We are college football's fastest growing national podcast. College football is our passion. Giving you deep college football insight and analysis is our mission. Because at BFC, we bring football closer. I am your co-host, Chipper Chappy, joined as always by our buddy, Bip. I certainly had a gluttonous dose of CFB this weekend. Bip, how about you? Yes, sir. My DVR is just now about clearing up from all the games uh, that were available. And the first weekend of college football was was a pretty good one. I'll say, I mean, like I said earlier, five days, that's uh, that's the way to kick it off, man. So Absolutely. It's almost like uh, a tease to bowl season. And as you know, bowl season is, what, like 21 straight days of, of glory? Exactly. Awesome. So, well, Bip and I, we're on Twitter. So if you don't already, please give us a follow. I am at champion underscore lit. And I am at BFC Bip. So share our handle with others. Like our posts if you are inclined to do so. Reply with your thoughts, retweet, and even direct message us with questions or commentary or ideas for what we can do for you, the college football fan. Visit our show's Twitter page on at Bowlful of Chips, where we post our website for a growing number of resources and information to satisfy your college football hunger. You can also find links to our previous podcasts and contact us at bowlfulofchips at gmail.com. So week one recap, Bip. Uh, let's start off with what we learned. You want to get us going here on this part? Sure. Um, so First and foremost, I learned not to pick against the SEC in week one in these <laughs> interconference uh, matchups. And I kind of touched upon it last time um, when I picked Oregon by 10. Um, and I even said at that point, I don't like picking against the SEC, especially in week one in these uh, power yep. five matchups. And I like my pick through the first three quarters, but Oregon was inept for much of the second half. Um, and they just seem to run out of gas, which is strange because what they, what was working for them throughout the entire first half was running the ball and that offensive, that offensive line wearing down that Auburn defense. So you would figure that that would have carried into the second half. Um, Bo Nix didn't impress me overall as he had several poorly thrown balls. And I think against the sec defenses that he's going to face could be even more of a challenge, uh, for him from a pressure standpoint, but I was uh, impressed with the the final quarter and how he was able to deliver for the Tigers. I was impressed with the play of the Oregon defensive back, save for that last touchdown pass by Auburn. And I was very impressed with that Auburn defensive line, how they seemed to get better throughout the game. A nod to their not only their talent, but that depth along the uh, the defensive line for the Tigers there. And as you pointed out on multiple occasions, Chappie, Herbert, he has the measurables for the NFL, but he seems to lack that it factor to make the duck fans mm -hmm. comfortable when the game is on the line. And he kind of showed that there that even though you're six, five and you have some good arm strength, um, you know, what, what does that mean if you continue to underperform when it matters most for Oregon? So that was uh, by and large, the, the number one thing that I learned from this weekend, Chappie, how about you? Well, I'm going to give you a little buffet, and uh, you can feast on this bit, short and sweet. So a few things that I have in my notes here. First of all, the Big 12 looks pretty good on paper. All <laughs> 10 teams won, and only three gave up more than 17 points. Now, that's pretty impressive, but seven of those 10 wins came against FCS schools. Oklahoma beat what should be a pretty good Houston team. Oklahoma State, damn it, beat Oregon State and ruined my upset pick. And Texas beat Louisiana Tech. So only one school played a Power 5 opponent, and 
they played what many people feel is one of the worst power five opponents that you could play um, or the best, I guess, if you're playing them. But um, so other things, big 10 showed some offense. Two teams scored 79 points, Penn state and Maryland, four others scored 42 points or more and three others put up a 34 spot or better. So you're looking at more than half the league that is putting up points in a, in a league that is kind of looked down upon in terms of, you know, offensive skills and whatnot. And, you know, they always say, well, Ohio state's good. And then they always throw out Purdue as if Purdue is consistently, you know, racking up 50 points a game, which is not always true. And then there was Northwestern, one of only two (laughs) big 10 teams out of 14 that lost and they scored seven, seven points. (laughs) <laughs> and and I, I think you can also add to that Michigan State, considering the fact that they won 28-7 against Tulsa. Ten of their points yeah. came, or I'm sorry, nine of their points came defensively, and they forced five turnovers. So they need to get things straightened out there because that defense is otherworldly, but that offense continues to look stagnant for them. Yeah, and there's a big asterisk next to it in Nebraska. They were one of those teams that put up a 34 spot or better, but 21 of those 35 points came from their defense defense or special teams so only 14 points accounted by that offense and by the way adrian martinez was no part of that um other things i learned so many people are going to hop aboard the boise bus assuming they have an easy path to an undefeated season now that they beat florida state on the road again damn it um (laughs) that beat my pick but it looks like that mountain west mountain division is going to be even more competitive than we thought air force beat colgate 48 to 7 now i know colgate's an fcs team but they did so by outgaining the toothpasters 464 to 151 in total offense and only threw one pass bip. So 464 yards of total offense, and they only put it in the air one time. It's pretty impressive. Why, yeah, Wyoming beat a Missouri team that everyone felt was going to be really good in the SEC this year. Not us, mind you. Yep. Um, Utah State put up a lot of points in a loss to what may turn out to be a noise-making Wake Forest team. And who started Even for Wake t- Forest, Chappie? Uh, not my guy, but, uh, you know, kudos to Jamie Newman, who actually sure, did have sure. a hell of a game. Right. I think over 350 yards passing three touchdowns, zero interceptions. Yeah. Um, going, going toe to toe with a highly offensive Utah state team. That was a great performance. Yeah, it was a fun, number 12. So fun I'm, game. I'm yeah, I'm going to give him his due. So, uh, even Colorado state looks to have some weapons on offense. And that game is the last weekend of the season in a likely snowy Fort Collins against Boise state. Oh, and BYU out of conference in Provo could be a test. Uh, they played right with Utah this last weekend until the fourth quarter. Mm-hmm. So all I'm saying is the Broncos have their work cut out for them if they're to earn a New Year's Six berth. But I tell you, their young talent looks good. But their toughest struggle may they fa- they may face is keeping head coach Brian Harson around that blue turf. Yeah. Um, other things uh, that I noted, uh, teams that are better than I thought at, in week one, and I know it's week one, so we'll take it with a grain of salt, but we talked about Boise State. How about Illinois? They scored 42 points on an Akron defense that was actually decent last year and brought back a good amount of those players from last year's team. Uh, maybe Colorado is better than I thought. They forced four turnovers and scored 50-some points, um, didn't cause or didn't make any turnovers of their own. Ole Miss's defense is better than I thought. They held mighty Memphis to just 15 points at home, even though they lost 15 to 10 to keep Memphis's offense to 15 points in the Liberty bowl in week one. That's saying something. Yeah. And um, that, that game was maybe one of my biggest disappointments and how that turned out to be 15, 10 when I thought it may have been yeah. 50 to 45. Right. Uh, believe it or not, the Northwestern Stanford game actually had more points than that one. Go figure. <laughs> so, um, Actually, no, they didn't. That's uh, my math is off. But they're they're only four points shy. Yeah, 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 right. (laughs) Uh, In today's uh, education classes, that would probably still pass. So, (laughs) Um, and then Louisville. Um, I I know that they played your Notre Dame Fighting Irish, and as you watched the replay, you watched it already, right, Bip? Oh yeah, yep. Okay, so uh, your heart had to be uh, dropping a little bit when they scored on their first two drives against that highly talented Notre Dame defense, but um, you know, the, the Cardinals moved the ball fairly consistently against a good Notre Dame defense. They really just shot themselves in the foot and it was evident on the back to back to back fumble drives <laughs> between those two schools in the third quarter. Um, I really thought that they were going to take the Irish toe to toe after watching the first uh, two quarters and half of the second quarter. I thought that was going to go down to late in the fourth quarter but then, like I said, Puma passed, just uh, had some fumble issues, and then that offense was 
really running into that Notre Dame brick wall on defense. So. Yeah, and, and testament to Scott Satterfield. They really took it to the Irish early on in that game. Um, Clark Lee provided some good adjustments, uh, but you really saw the the what could uh, be the hamstring of the Notre Dame defense this year, losing Tillery, Coney, and Drew Tranquil as they had uh, lots of missed tackles and uh, some poor yeah. play from the linebackers. But yeah, much credit given to Louisville. They look to be like they could be a lot better than what people thought going into this year, considering how bad they were last year. Yeah. And then um, not teams that are not as good as I thought. And I think that most people, especially these fan bases uh, would echo that and probably throw something at the wall when they hear it. First and foremost, Tennessee. And we'll talk more about them in a minute. Florida state again, damn it. Uh, Virginia <laughs> tech. They lost the turnover ratio one to five. They turned the ball over five times. Ryan Willis really disappointed me. He had three interceptions against that Boston College defense who uh, was replacing a lot of guys on that yeah. defense, and they still caused five turnovers. Army, not as good as I thought. They barely beat a not very good Rice team, mm -hmm. and as a result, they're now 22.5-point underdogs against Michigan when um, I think going into the season, people were probably pegging them as maybe barely double-digit underdogs against Michigan based on the way they played last year. Mm -hmm. And then Nebraska. Um, Nebraska, you really almost got beaten by South Alabama at home. In fact, the Jaguars' offense scored more touchdowns than the Huskers' offense. I even heard an analyst ask in earnest, is this the return of the black shirt defense? Mm, not yet. So <laughs> those are just some of my thoughts on what I learned this weekend. Bip. Now, what surprised me? I'm going to get back to that Tennessee thing because – this really stings me because I pegged them to win 10 games this year, and now they're going to have to earn one and really earn it in a game that they're probably not supposed to win. Uh, they got beat at home. I had them, like I said, winning 10 games. I certainly didn't think that an increasingly competitive Vols team would get beat by a two-win Sunbelt team at home. Maybe Appalachian State, maybe Troy, maybe even Arkansas State or Georgia Southern, but not Georgia State. Granted, GSU returned a lot of Letterman, 53 and a capable, experienced quarterback in Dan Ellington. But you figured the Vols would maybe turn it on in the second half and at least climb and reach the top of the hill. UT trailed at three different points in the game and only led once in the second half, and that was for about three minutes. Their largest deficit was in the fourth quarter, where they were trailing 15 points and had to score with two seconds left to make it look like a one-score game. So uh, they lost by eight, but really it was a 15-point loss because at that point Georgia State was, you know, wrapping it up and said, okay, we've got this in the bag. And you had to imagine that those guys were more willing to celebrate as opposed to play one last defensive play. Um, this loss was not good for Jeremy Pruitt. I still hold faith that the Vols are a bowl team this year and maybe the third best team in the SEC East, but that's a scratch and claw with the other week one disappointments of the SEC East, meaning Missouri and South Carolina, both losing games they shouldn't have, Vandy getting handled by a good Georgia team, and Kentucky getting a tussle from Toledo. Still, the latter two won their games, so they can hold that over the Vols at least for one week, Bip. But that's what really surprised me uh, in week one was just how disappointing – Tennessee looked at home in Rocky Top in a season when I'm sure those Vol fans were itching for maybe this is the year we come back. Yeah, and was it uh, was it which big time or um, personality claimed that uh, Tennessee was going to win the uh, the SEC this year? Was that Coward Chappie? Colin Coward. Yeah, <laughs> I I, I yeah. would I don't normally listen to his radio program, but I would have loved yeah. to have listened on Monday to see if he even addressed it or if he told his producers no calls about Tennessee today. <laughs> right. Exactly. So yep. <laughs> what really surprised me was how Florida state completely fell apart in that game, similar to the ducks, uh, but even more so in this contest as Florida state played a home game with the move of the game from um, Jacksonville to, to Tallahassee. Um, the Seminoles were up 24-6 early in the second and had both sides of the ball dominating Boise State. Hank Bachmeyer, who lucked out to be named Hank, as we as we found out, as his brothers being named Buck, <laughs> Tiger, and Bear, um, right? <laughs> he looked kind of lost in the first quarter and in a half, uh, or the first quarter and a half due to that Seminoles defensive line and secondary, but he really came on towards the end of the year. He looks like he could be um, yet another in that Boise State quarterback factory that 
as soon as a four-year starter leaves the leaves to go to the NFL or just to, to graduate, they always seem to insert a freshman, a redshirt uh-huh. freshman, and it's just the same rinse and repeat four-year starting quarterback. And Bachmeyer looks like he could be one of the better ones of that group. Offensively, the Seminoles were moving the ball at will and appeared to have too many athletes for the Broncos to handle. Cam Akers and Tamori and Terry validated uh, how much the two of us like them going into the season. And your boy Kendall Bryles, Looked like he was on the fast track to the Broyles Award. And then Boise State then started to claw back came. in. Yeah. <laughs> Florida State then proceeded to be outscored 30 to 7 the rest of the game and missed multiple tackles and opportunities to get yeah. back uh, control of this game. The most frustrating for Seminole fans being that fumble that not one, but two Seminoles couldn't fall on at their own two yard line. Boise recovered, scored a uh, touchdown two plays later to take the lead 33 31. Um, this Florida state team quit multiple times last year. And while this definitely wasn't them quitting, it's just as infuriating as it was a game that wasn't finished. So a big black eye for the, the Seminoles considering what they were last year and how much, uh, hope that they had, uh, not only going into the season, but after that first quarter and a half. Um, so that's what, that, what really surprised me. I was also kind of taken aback at how bad USF uh, South Florida played against Wisconsin. Yes, yeah. that was my upset pick last week. And I don't <laughs> think I could have been further away from that one. Also really surprised at how Iowa State barely comes away with a victory against Northern Iowa. They score a or they kick a field goal to tie things with only 59 seconds left to go in the fourth. And then in the third overtime, they fumble the ball before recovering it and then going on to score the game winning touchdown. So uh, going into the um, uh, playing Iowa in a couple weeks, Iowa State definitely has to get some things ironed out. Really surprised at uh, how the Cyclones uh, didn't seem to show up prepared to play against Northern Iowa. Yeah, and you have to think that the athletic director for Iowa State is saying, all right, no more small Iowa schools against us. Because <laughs> if you recall last year, they had to play Drake in a makeup game in that weird last weekend that was made up from, um, I, I can't remember who they had scheduled, but I think they had to schedule Drake late. And they almost lost that game yeah. in uh, on championship Saturday. And then they come here and open up against Northern Iowa. And I don't know if you saw the, the replay bip at the end when um, Crony fumbled the ball. And it bounced for what seemed like an eternity. And no player on Northern Iowa's defense knew that the ball was on the ground. And miraculously, (laughs) they recovered. And then they scored on the next play. I mean, in all cases, they probably should have lost that game. And you talk about a huge fall from grace. Iowa State, who a lot of people are picking to either contend for the Big 12 or win the Big 12 outright and maybe even make the college football playoff. There are some people who win as far as to say that. Mm -hmm. To lose at home to Northern Iowa in your home opener when you've got Iowa looming, who looks like a good Iowa team, yeah, uh, that would have been disastrous. So, yeah, Coach Campbell's got a lot of work to do, and I'm confident he'll get them righted. But, uh, yeah, that was scary for if you're a Cyclone. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and, yeah, going back to Florida State, what is even more mind-boggling than the collapse in the second half and the fact that they didn't score any points in the second half. I mean, I'm baffled. I, I want to go back and look and see the last time a Kendall Bryles offense was shut out in a half. Yeah. Uh, or a quarter even. Um, I mean, even not to get a field goal. But and, and not just not falling on that fumble. Look at the percentages. You pick it up at the two-yard line when there's a mash of 20 other guys on the field. 11 of, them are, 11 of them are on the opposing team, and about four or five of them are your fatties who are in front of you. What are the <laughs> odds you're going to scoop and score and take that all the way to the house? Just fall on it. Yeah. Unle- and worst case scenario, you go three and out, you punt it, and you back them up a little bit and make them go back toward the field because at that point your defense is playing okay, mm-hmm. but um, to, to give them basically new life at the two-yard line, you know that they're eventually going to punch it in because at that point, Florida State looked gassed and Florida State looked like they were um, on the ropes. Yeah, unless your name's Ed Reed, you need to fall on that football at the two-yard line. Right, yeah. Even if I'm Usain Bolt, I'm telling uh, (laughs) myself, fall on that ball. Fall on that ball. You're right. (laughs) But what was more staggering was Willie Taggart's comments afterwards where he's essentially – saying that maybe his guys were dehydrated and saying that that's what kind of brought them down. Dude, 
You guys are from Florida. <laughs> you live there. 90% of your roster is from the Sunshine State. You're a peninsula. You're surrounded on three sides by water. Hurricanes are like a daily or a summerly occurrence to you. If anyone has reason for gripe that it, it's too humid, it's the Boise State Broncos who come from the land of mountains, potatoes, and Uncle Rico. Come on, man. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm yeah, baffled. Not that. a good testament to their strength and conditioning coach if you're cramping up in the first game <laughs> when it's a home game. Right, exactly. And I, I mean, you had to have known it was going to be hot and humid, even if, I mean, Boise knew that, and they don't even live there. They knew coming in. Yeah. And if you watch the game, they they showed how they were basically dumping water and humidity into the uh, practice right. facility. They had the heat or they had the air turned off because they wanted them to get used to it. Yep. And they're not even from there. So uh, I'm sorry, Coach Taggart. I, I was trying to back you up and I was trying to give you some sort of love in the preseason. And you come out and say this. I mean, that's probably the worst and most ill thought out excuse that you could make. <laughs> and your team is a long way to go. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so that leads me to my question that I have for, for week one. Why can't these quote-unquote premier teams finish? What the hell happened in the second half to these offenses and defenses? Purdue, a Power 5 school who some were saying could contend in the Big Ten West, maybe, maybe not. They led by 17, couldn't finish. Florida State led by 19, couldn't finish. Auburn did nothing offensively in the first half, and Oregon was dominating and still couldn't finish against the Tigers. I mean, I'm not as surprised maybe at Purdue or Oregon, to be honest. But again, Florida State, when you're rolling the way that you are at home and it's now a home game. And, and I think that Boise State fans and Boise State administrators and coaches had some gripe to say, really, you're going to move it into Tallahassee. We couldn't take it into an indoor stadium somewhere, uh, go to Miami, maybe, uh, or even just cancel it or play it. Uh, there's got to be some other neutral site, but to play it in Dope Campbell. But they didn't flinch. They didn't complain. They said, all right your place, uh, give us the ball, let's do it. And they did it. Mm -hmm. And they were so far against the ropes in that first half. I mean, I made the mistake, and I'm going to learn from that. I, I tweeted out and said, uh, if you want to see, if you have any questions at Florida State's back, turn on the game right now. Oh, so Boy, you're the kiss of death, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I definitely was. So I'll take that one, Noel fans, and I'm sorry. Um you know, feel free to chime in on Twitter if you haven't already. But yeah, uh, yeah I, I'm champion not underscore gonna... lit for all of you. Seminal that's right. Fans. Yep. <laughs> and it's a good thing I don't have to talk about it because my foot is still in my mouth. So, <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, a couple other questions I had uh, or actually one more question. New Mexico State gave up 58 points to Washington State in week one. Guess who they play this week, Bip? Um, Bama. Bama, you got it. Bama's a 55-and-a-half-point favorite. So will their defensive coordinator, Frank Spaziani, who was pretty good in his heyday, this is his fourth year running the defense at New Mexico State, will he be given grace or is the leash tightening? Because the uh, the Aztecs, or not the Aztecs, um, the Aggies of New Mexico State also have to play Fresno State, Georgia Southern, an improved Central Michigan offense, Ole Miss, and a Hugh Freeze-led Liberty offense twice on their schedule. At least they get the Incarnate Word and UTEP in back-to-back -back games in Las Cruces. But there's going to be a lot of points scored on the uh, New Mexico State defense this season, Bip, and it's not going to get any easier this week. Yeah. So that's my question is how many points is Bama actually going to put up? And, and speaking of Hugh Freeze, I didn't get a chance to dive deep into the article, but I saw that Hugh Freeze coached the game from a hospital bed. Um, yeah. And, and it made me think of, I don't, I don't mean to laugh. It was just a funny. Image. Yeah. Well, and it made me think of, uh, Lou Brown from major league when he had his, uh, heart <laughs> surgery jumping up and down on the bed. But, uh, so yeah, ho hopefully the gown was done up in the back and we didn't see Hugh Freeze's ass. Right. So. <laughs> so my question is at what point do we start handicapping Lincoln Riley and that Oklahoma offense? I mean, this is getting right. ridiculous. I was skeptical that Jalen Hurts could be nearly as good as what Kyler Murray and Baker Mayfield were in this offense. No longer will I ever question how productive a Lincoln Riley coached quarterback can be. 332 yards, three touchdowns passing while going 20 of 23 Oh, and Hertz also ran for 176 yards and three scores, which, uh, oh, is that all? yeah, which I think was 50 or 60 yards more than what Kyler Murray ran for in any single game last year. So yeah. I propose the following, um, and, and any of these three options could be chosen. Uh, Lincoln Riley must be blindfolded during the game. Um, <laughs> the starting Oklahoma quarterback must play the game in a potato sack up to their waist. 
or the opposing defense can select two NFL players of their choice to borrow for the game against the Sooners. I'm excited to see how Hurt stacks up against the previous two Heisman winners the rest of the year, and I wonder if anything can slow down this Oklahoma offense and, most of all, a Lincoln-Riley-called uh, offensive game plan, Chappie. I'm still going to put the over-under on Oklahoma points scored in the potato sack at uh, 40. Yeah, so. well, yeah, because like uh, <laughs> like I said, Hertz was 20-23. So <laughs> right. even if you take away his running ability, um, just an unbelievable offense. So much fun to watch. And granted, it was against a Houston team that may not have the best defense. But you know that this is only going to be the beginning of the year for the Sooners. And it's going to be more the norm, not the uh, exception to the rule. And my question already, and maybe Vegas should put a line out on this, who's going to be the hot transfer quarterback who is the next one to go to Oklahoma to to play in that Lincoln-Riley offense? Well, that'll be interesting to see because they already have, obviously they have, um, and I'm blanking on his, uh, Spencer Rattler, Rattler. but I th- yeah. they also got the number one uh, dual threat quarterback commit for next year's incoming freshman class. Uh, not this current one, but the one after. Um, right. So what does that, it doesn't seem to be slowing down recruiting by any means, but if he keeps bringing in these no. transfers, what is that dynamic yeah. going to be in Norman, Oklahoma? Seems to me it like it would be a, a healthy best quarterback gets the job, but that'll be an interesting right. um, transgression to see unfold as they continue to recruit well and bring in the transfers. I can pretty much guarantee you they will get some, notable transfer coming in maybe not somebody who started but maybe somebody who has split time at a decent program um just as kind of a a contingency of all contingencies because yeah all words speaks to that spencer rattler is going to be a a very good quarterback um and that new guy that they've got coming in the future sounds good but you know you're always one injury away or you're one transfer away from needing that contingency that backup plan so that'll be interesting bit but i I can see that happening. So let's get to our, our, our champion and our bit vip for the week. So my Chappie's champion, I'm going to go with Brendan, Brandon Talton, the walk-on freshman place kicker for Nevada. Now, I don't care what other people say about it. I am a big fan of these great stories yes. where a guy earns a scholarship. So with all the noise about how these players should be paid thousands of dollars to offset the millions they bring into the university, which it's not just them bringing in the money, by <laughs> right. the way. Um, it's so great to see and hear about these guys who work their tails a little harder and feel the intangible or feel the tangible palpitations of earning their scholarship. And back to Talton, not only was it the game winner as a freshman, as a walk-on, who was told by a mid-level group of five school that you are not quite good enough to award one of 85 scholarships to, but it was from 56 yards and it went easily through the uprights and could have been good from at least 60 bip that's straight up ice right there so i'm giving my champion pick to mr talton well done young man yep and well deserved i was i was struggling to stay awake because that was later on in the night and i I Mm -hmm. saw the the game unfolding and unraveling for purdue at the time and i knew that something was going something good was going to happen and i was going to regret it if i went to bed Luckily, I was I stayed up, was able to see that kick go through the uprights and what an unbelievable start to the season for uh, Nevada after coming off a pretty solid season last year. So and now they get to go play a pissed off. Oregon. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, they just need to get into the second half. So um, sure. My uh, I'm actually going to have a dual VIP VIP uh, and I'm going to it's going to be from the same game. So I'm going to start off with David Woodward from Utah State. Now, Woodward started off the year with an unbelievable bang. He collected 24 tackles, 18 of them solo, uh, one sack, three and a half tackles for loss and two forced fumbles against Wake Forest. Now, Wake Forest runs amongst the most plays within uh, all of college football. So you figure a middle right. linebacker should be able to rack up the totals the or the tally up the, the tackles. But he almost had about a quarter of um, the, the tackles for uh, Nevada in this game. And, um, you know, adding in the fact that he had those tackles for loss, the two forced fumbles, he was all over the field. And it's a shame that his effort for, um, for this one, uh, was all for not as Wake Forest comes away with the win in one of the more underrated, uh, and entertaining games of the weekend. But, uh, on the other side of the ball, I'm also going to go with Jamie Newman. And I I know that you might not want to hear this chappy, but you already spouted off some of his numbers. Um, Wake Forest has now won four of his last five starts 
and he was on point in this one, completed 72% of his passes, three touchdowns, 400 yards, no picks, also ran in a score and threw the game-winning pass with just over a minute left in the game to sink the Aggie. So I think Wake's going to be a threat in the ACC this year as long as Newman is at the helm, and uh, they're one of my more intriguing teams to watch as the, se- as the season continues to unfold. Yeah, no, those are good picks. And, and again, I'm happy to see Wake Forest do well. Um, so, you know, it's, it's good for, you know, whoever's at the helmet quarterback right. there. Obviously, it's a win-win situation, and they got the win. And that was a very important win because I think that that can catapult their season. They, their schedule sets up to where they can make some noise in that Atlantic division mm-hmm. behind uh, Clemson and behind whether it's uh, – I mean, now number two is pretty much wide open because – Syracuse didn't completely thrill me against um, Liberty. Liberty. Yep. And, uh, you know, uh, obviously Florida State, we already talked about that at nauseum. So, <laughs> I mean, NC State will will be a test, but they actually get the Wolfpack in Winston-Salem this year, so that's going to help them out. So look out for the, uh, the Deeks this yeah, year. Yeah, for sure. All right, so let's get to our week two previews. Now, um, my picks were not as good last week. I think I went a total of four and five. I went 1-0 on my lock. I did hit my upset pick, um, but, you know, there were some games that I thought were going to be better and I didn't hit it. And I'm talking about going against the spread. So straight up, I did a little bit better. Uh, that Northwestern uh, loss in the end when when Stanford had that backdoor cover, that probably screwed a lot of people up <laughs> to put money on that game. I'll raise so, my hand for that. Um, yeah, exactly. I know. So, um, well, I'm going to start off with Miami playing at North Carolina. So the Hurricanes... Uh, they've had a two-week layoff, and UNC is fresh and excited off an important win, uh, a win that made Mac Brown emotional on national TV, and rightfully so. Keenan Stadium is sold out, and the atmosphere should be pretty good. Now, this is going to be a matchup of two pretty solid defenses. UNC's defense played pretty well, holding South Carolina to 23 yards in their final 15 minutes. I'm sorry, 23, uh, yeah, 23 yards in the final 15 minutes and caused a couple of turnovers. They got a lot of pressure, 10 total pressures on Jake Bentley last week. Um, and my prediction has come to fruition. I did say that um, Ryan Halinski is going to end up being the guy for the majority of the season this year. Unfortunately, I was not calling for Jake Bentley to get injured. It sounds like he's going to be done for the season yeah. for South Carolina. Yeah. But going back to North Carolina, they're going against a Miami offensive line that gave up 10 sacks against Florida. Safety Miles Wolfolk for the Tar Heels had two interceptions in linebacker who was a converted quarterback, Chaz Surratt, played well in his new position, especially when new defensive coordinator Jay Bateman got aggressive and sent him to attack the line of scrimmage. Now, UNC is not to the caliber of Florida's defense yet, but should still be respected. On the other side, Miami's defense pressured Felipe Franks 11 times and made him look just sloppy and ill-prepared, and Franks clearly was the more veteran quarterback when you compare him against freshman Sam Howell for North Carolina. So speaking of Howell, he's a true freshman going against this really good Miami defense. How much does offensive coordinator Phil Longo and that offense offensive staff trust Howell, the freshman? Um, UNC was pretty well balanced with 245 yards passing and 238 yards rushing. Javante Williams was their leading rusher. He rushed for 108 yards. Um, and Howell's receivers showed a good display of go-and-get-it hands but they will be better tested against a more physical Miami secondary led by Trajan Bandy at that outside corner spot. So they've got to tackle or Miami has to tackle better this week though, if they're going to keep up and, and uh, win the game that they're expected to win against UNC, both teams protect protected the ball really well. Only one uh, turnover for each squad last week or in their first game, I should say, because Miami played two weeks ago. But really, uh, they, both teams really need to clean up the penalties as each had double-digit laundry calls in their opener. Each did a good job of protecting the ball, and UNC's run defense was a little more susceptible than Miami's was, and that could turn out to be the difference here, Bip. So I think this one could be close at times, but there's a greater sense of urgency for the Canes and more veteran talent on Miami's side. So I'm going to say that Miami brings the heels back to earth with a nine-point victory. But if Baby Blue gets the win... Watch out in the coastal, baby. So I'm going to call Miami 28-19 over North Carolina on that one. Yeah, and I would agree with you on that one. I wasn't sold with Jaron Williams. Jury's still out for me on him, but I do like those Miami running backs. I really like that defense as long as they can shore up the tackling, which I think they will. Um, and mm-hmm. 
I really like Trajan Bandy. He had a couple of really nice open field tackles in that game against Florida. And obviously we know that he's a great cover guy. Um, I like Miami in this one as well. And I don't think it's going to be as close as what you mentioned. I like them to win by just a little bit more. Um, but uh, I'm, I I'm intrigued to see what this North Carolina team uh, looks like coming off of that win. And, uh, you know, what, what their uh, projection is moving forward in this season. So, Yep. Game I'm going to go to and start with is going back to the Syracuse Orange, and they're playing at Maryland. And this spread has moved a lot since last week. Now, I know Maryland won 79 nothing. Syracuse, though, they won 24 nothing against the Liberty team that uh, was able to move the ball really effectively last year. Um, so the 24 nothing might not seem like much for Syracuse, considering that it is Liberty. Uh, but Liberty was actually 34th in the country in points scored and returned their top quarterback, running back, and top two receivers. So that was a nice shutout for the Orange. Um, I, as of right now, I see that Maryland has actually moved to the favorite by two points, even though Syracuse started off the week yeah. as the favorite. So, again, a lot of money must be switching hands uh, going in favor of the Terps uh, on this one. Um, but I was surprised to see that. So for Syracuse... Um, the uh, the orange, as I mentioned, shut out Liberty and they held a thousand yard back Frankie Hicks into only 29 yards rushing. They also recorded eight sacks and 14 tackles for loss while for, forcing four turnovers. So they really got after that Liberty Liberty squad. We know that Syracuse mm -hmm. had all the pieces for a good defense this year, but their biggest question was uh, Tommy DeVito. And he didn't really do a whole lot to dispel that. Uh, Liberty had a bottom 20 defense in most major de uh, defensive stats last year. And despite that, Syracuse only scored 24 points and DeVito completed under 50% of his passes while throwing two picks and no touchdowns. So uh, conversely, Maryland, um, they put up the 79 points uh, last week and looked really impressive. They had a balanced offensive attack with 317 rushing yards, 306 passing yards. Uh, Virginia Tech transfer quarterback Josh Jackson was efficient. He had four touchdowns, no picks, completed 62% of his passes. Four different Terps scored on the ground, including Anthony McFarlane, who scored two, and he was really used sparingly, only had 18 yards in this game. Defensively, the Terps held Howard a one net rushing yard on 38 carries and 67 passing yards. They also added five sacks and one forced turnover. Going into this weekend, I'm looking to see which defense rises more to the occasion. That nasty Syracuse pass rush could cause problems for Josh Jackson, but a good running game is the best counter to that. And Maryland had three guys that rushed for over 60 yards this week, and that's not even including McFarland. I'm looking. To, I'm also looking to see which team can protect against turnovers. As Syracuse picked right back up where they left off last year with four with the four turnovers, but turnover prone Tommy DeVito can give it back just as quickly as that defense can take it away. Mo Neal. Um, I mentioned him going into the season. He compiled 143 uh, total yards of offense, and I think that he's going to be leaned on heavily by that orange offense to try and control the clock, keep their pass rushers fresh, and that Maryland offense uh, off the field as often as possible. Maryland impressed me last week, but not enough to sway my thoughts going into the season about this game. I like Syracuse in a lower scoring game than what, what folks might think. I like Syracuse 24, Maryland 17. Yeah, I, I say all day, give me Syracuse and the points in this one. Uh, I was really shocked to see that uh, Maryland was a two-point favorite. Right. Their 79 points last week were, I think, a bit of a fluke. It was against Howard, so please, please pump the right. brakes, Maryland fans. That's a lot of points. I don't care who you're playing. You put up 79 points in practice, that's a good practice. But um, let's see what Josh Jackson can do against a good Syracuse defense. And something that I was thinking about is, Syracuse uh, being in the ACC and with Josh Jackson being a former ACC player, they're going to have more film on him than Maryland is going to necessarily have uh, on Syracuse. So I think that might play a little bit of a, a an edge that the Cues has over uh, Mr. Jackson. Mike Loxley, as a head coach, has had trouble against Power 5 teams in his, his entire career. And I think the Orange, like you said, may try to slow this game down a bit and and hit to the run game. Give Tommy DeVito some manageable throws, but really go to Mo Neal and Abdul Adams and ground and pound and uh, try and keep that Maryland defense on the field and wear them out and keep that highly offensive group for the Terps off the field. So I'm going to take the orange with a bit wider of a spread. I'm going to take Syracuse 30 to 21 in this. Okay. One. 
Um, let's get to your your next game. What's another one that you're going to keep an eye out for and we should we should talk well, about? Well, this one uh, is one that lots of folks are going to be watching this weekend, and that's Texas A&M at Clemson. Uh, the Aggies getting 19 and a half points in this one. Um, now, Clemson... And it's, and it's been brought down to 17 and has a half it? Okay. recently. Gotcha. So, but still, still, uh, that, that's still a big Right. Number. And Clemson did uh, pretty much what we expected against Georgia Tech. They ran the ball, ran the ball really well, shut down the passing uh, offensive Georgia Tech and won by almost 40 points. Travis Etienne averaged over 17 yards per carry, which was aided by touchdown runs of 90, 48, and 14. What was surprising was the rust that Trevor Lawrence showed. He completed 56% of his passes, two picks. Uh, no need to hit the panic button, but something to monitor for sure, um, as I expected a better output from him considering the turnover that uh, Georgia Tech was facing coming into the season. Um, Texas A&M, on the other hand, almost pitched a shutout until Texas State scored with 36 seconds left in the game. Uh, offensively, Jay Sean Corbin and Isaiah Spiller both ran for over 100 yards while the Aggies held Texas State to only eight yards on the ground. Granted, this was Texas State but very encouraging for the Aggies, given that they had a mass exodus in their front seven from last year. Kellen Mond looked very uh, highly efficient, had four total touchdowns, completed 70% of his passes. I think the running game in this one's going to be paramount for the Aggies if they have any chance in this game. Corbin and Spiller and Kellen Mond, when he's improvising or on design quarterback runs, will need to ground out the yards to keep that Clemson offense off the field. I think the Aggies might have trouble throwing the ball on this talented Clemson secondary, though. Um, but they Agreed. should be aided with that A&M offensive line uh, that was pretty impressive against the Bobcats, allowing for 6.8 yards per carry and not allowing a single sack of Kellen Mond. And Texas A&M has one of the more underrated offensive line histories in recent memory as they continue to churn out uh, good offensive linemen after good offensive linemen that head on to the NFL. And with this new Clemson defensive line, there's an opportunity for A&M to take advantage of that, in my opinion. Clemson's defense recorded three sacks and eight tackles for loss against the Yellow Jackets. So this will be an interesting matchup between the two teams of that um, A&M offensive line against the uh, Clemson defensive line. For the Clemson offense, Etienne and uh, Jalen Dixon should have plenty of opportunity to run free on this Aggie front seven. As I mentioned, they're replacing just about everyone uh, are the Aggies. And Trevor Lawrence is going to need to be careful going into this game against the Aggies as they intercepted four passes last game, two of them by Miles Jones and one by uh, Roni Elam, who also had two passes defended and a tackle and a half for loss. I like both rushing attacks to be effective in this game, which should open the door for a few deep ball opportunities for each. That said, I like the Clemson secondary better than that uh, uh better than the Aggie secondary. And I like that Clemson offensive line and running backs better as well. Look for Isaiah Simmons to rack up the tackles on the Aggie running backs and uh, on Kellen Mond in the middle of the field. I don't think this one is as close as it was last year, but it's not near that 17 and a half point spread. But I think the Tigers get the better, the better of Texas A&M once again and improve to two and zero. I like Clemson 37 uh, over Texas A&M 27. And that's going to be my against the spread lock this week, Chappie. Okay. Um, yeah. When I saw the spread 17 and a half points, it seems like a large number. Now I think Kellen Mond can have a big game again and you know, A&M is not going to be intimidated playing in death Valley. They've already kind of been, I, I think the whole, um, I can't remember the offensive lineman's name. Hawker, I think is his name, but um, you know, the, the media is saying like he's predicting victory and whatnot. And, and that's pretty watered down now. Anyway, I mean, yeah. so many guys will say, yeah, we're going to predict a victory. He's not guaranteeing anything, and he's not saying, I'm going to put up my you know, mortgage on it. He's just, I mean, wouldn't you want your players to say, yeah, I expect to win? Uh, exactly. If any one of my players said, uh, well, I don't know. I, I hope we can just hang around down there. I mean, I know it worked for Lou Holtz uh, to the media, but we knew it was all a facade. Right. So um, A&M is going to be ready to play. They're going to show up. They've got they've got a lot of swag. they got a lot of dogs, as the kids <laughs> like to say, um, playing in that game. So they're not going to be intimidated playing in Death Valley. Um, still, Trevor Lawrence should rise up and play more to the level of his competition this week. Some people were criticizing. He only completed 53% of his passes last week through two picks against Georgia Tech. Um, I think we're going to see him elevate and get back to being that wow factor that we're used to seeing. Plus, for me, Bip, this is meaningful. The game's at 3.30. At first, I thought this was going to be a night game, but it's at 3.30 in Clemson. 
um, which will make it for more of a normal Clemson atmosphere and not give any more juice to those Aggies who are used to playing at night. Um, so that might be a, a factor to watch out for. Now, the Aggies' opponent last week, like you mentioned, Texas State, they only scored or they only had eight yards rushing, but they only ran the ball 15 times. Yeah. So um, the Aggie defense wasn't really used to seeing a run attack like they're going to see this week. And now here comes Travis Etienne and that really good Clemson offensive line, probably the most underrated and least talked about good offensive right. line in the country. Um, still, I think AM will fight like hell. And with 17 and a hook, give me the hook, Bip. And I'm going to say the Ags beat the spread by staying within 17. Clemson 34, AM 17. So AM beats the spread by the hook, uh, but Clemson still gets the job. Okay. Well, what about your next uh, one, Chappie? I'm going to go next to uh, my lock of the week against the spread, and that's going to be number 24 Nebraska um, getting or uh, giving four points to Colorado out in Boulder. Now, this is a line that has also swung uh, in different directions. It opened up with Nebraska being a seven-point favorite. Then I saw it drop down to three and a half. Now it's up to four again. So Nebraska players are likely going to be hit hard this week in practice. And I don't mean physically. I mean, Scott Frost is going to go after him. Uh, he was not happy after that performance against South Alabama. And this is an old big eight, big 12 rivalry. Um, and this is a game that Scott Frost did not want to lose and shouldn't have lost last year. Um, they put out a poor offensive showing against those South Alabama Jaguars, a team that was in the bottom 20 of nearly every defensive category last year. And Nebraska only had 276 yards total offense against them and less than a hundred yards rushing. Um, the last time we had to worry about minor or, uh, under a hundred yards rushing was when Bill Callahan was running that team. And that was a disaster <laughs> for big red fans. Um, they only scored two offensive touchdowns like we talked about earlier. So they put up 35, but only 14 of those 35 points came from the offense. Now, Nebraska averaged only 2.2 yards per carry on the ground and only threw for 178 yards, zero touchdowns. Their defense created five turnovers, which is good. Two of those turnovers resulted directly in scores. They had a fumble return and an interception return that they took back to the house. Colorado, their opponent this weekend, forced four turnovers, including two interceptions by safety, uh, Mikhail Onu, but they allowed 505 yards against an offense from a Colorado state team that really shouldn't hold a candle to Scott Frost's guys. So Colorado looked good in the point total, but their defense gave up 505 yards of offense and they uh, gave up 34 points. And now you're playing a pissed off Scott Frost and an Adrian Martinez who says he vows to be better this next week. Um, so watch out for that. And they're still stinging from that loss last year. Colorado will need to ground and pound effectively to control this game against the Huskers. They'll want to keep that offense off the field and try to wear down their defensive front, not giving that hungry and ball hawking secondary for the Huskers any opportunities for turnovers. Alex Fontenot and Jaron Mangum, the two running backs that Colorado will use, should expect to be hit and hit often. But if they can withstand the storm and that Colorado offensive line can grade against the Nebraska front, they'll be right where they want to be and set up the better part of their offense, which is the pass led by quarterback Steven Montez and then wide receiver LaVisca Chenault and Katie Nixon on the outside. Nebraska will need to work the perimeter better because the heart of Colorado's team comes right up the middle with nose tackle Mustafa Johnson, who had a big game last weekend, and linebackers Nate Landman and Jonathan Van Deest, and then, of course, their safety, Onu, which I talked about earlier, who roams around the middle of that secondary. Colorado allowed three different receivers with four or more catches to average 13 yards per reception or better. So this bodes well for the Huskers, but they need to get more out of their receivers and more receivers involved to help out J.D. Spielman and Wandale Robinson. You have to believe that Big Red will wake up for this one and come to play. They gave up a lead and a win in Lincoln last year, and their offensive coaches and players sound pissed. Not only do I see Nebraska winning bit, but I think it could be a whooping. So I'm going to call the Huskers to... Um, cover the spread and extend it, winning 38-21 over their old Big 8 rival. So Nebraska 38, Colorado 20. Yeah, I would agree with you on this one. I think that this point spread is way too low on this one. Um, three and a half right now um, for um, Nebraska. I think that this is easily at least a touchdown game. I think Nebraska is just going to have too many uh, athletes on offense to go after that uh, relatively um, young and inexperienced Colorado defense. I don't think Colorado benefits from getting four turnovers this week. And I think that, uh, like you mentioned, 
Scott Frost is going to have his guys ready to go. And this uh, this explosive offense could really take it to the Buffaloes there in Boulder. Um, so I'm with you. I think that this one ends up um, Nebraska 40, Colorado 27 in this one. I could see that. And, and just a little side note, if they ever make a movie about Scott Frost, you know who I think would be a great uh, uh, actor to uh, play whoever, him? I was gonna, Jesse, Jesse Plemons? Is for, Jesse, okay. Jesse Plemons from uh, I was gonna say, Lights. Lance? Not, a, not, not spot on, but certainly certainly close enough to resemble. Now, uh, Jesse's going to have to hit the weight room a little bit, but uh, uh, I, I think that would be a good <laughs> great. casting there. Well, Chappie, so what's yeah, your I'll get into my last one here, and that is the LSU Tigers getting um, – four points against the Texas Longhorns and the game is uh, being played in Texas. Um, now last week, Texas is coming off a, a 45 to 14 win over Louisiana tech in which all 14 points scored by the Bulldogs came in the fourth quarter when the game is well out of reach. Sam Ellinger picked off where he, uh, picked up where he left off last year, throwing four touchdowns and 276 yards without throwing a pick. Keontae Ingram averaged over seven yards per carry on the ground for the Longhorns, while Devin DuVernay, Colin Johnson, and Brennan Eagles combined for four touchdown grabs uh, thrown by Ellinger in this game. The active Texas secondary finished um, uh, two. Uh, number, I'm sorry, they the secondary finished two through five in tackles on the afternoon for the Longhorn defense, and they picked off two passes as well. Only one sack was recorded by Texas all game, which could be a problem for. Um, Texas against LSU if they give Joe Burrow lots of time to throw the ball. So that's something to keep an eye on. But they did limit the Bulldogs to under three yards per carry. And that run D will be put to the test against LSU uh, going into this one. LSU, on the other hand, was the only team in the SEC to beat a Sunbelt Conference team from the state of Georgia, winning 50 feet, 55 to 3. No thanks to you, Tennessee. Um, the Tiger defense held Georgia Southern to under two yards per carry and only first or eight first downs all game. Say what you want about Georgia Southern, but they won 10 games last year, and it's never easy to defend the triple yeah. option, especially one that returned several of its key contributors from the previous season. Quite honestly, going into last week, I thought it was going to be the reversal. I didn't think LSU was going to lose to Georgia Southern, but I thought if there was going to be any um, Sunbelt team to give an SEC team a run for their money, I thought for sure it would be Georgia Southern and not Georgia State. So this one kind of surprised me in the fact that LSU mopped them up 55-3 to in this one. Obviously, that vaunted LSU secondary wasn't tested much by the Eagles in this one, so there wasn't an opportunity for a tune-up before going against that talented passing attack. So we'll see how that maybe affects them early on in this game. But uh, Joe Burrow was even more efficient than Ellinger was, throwing for five touchdowns while completing 85% of his passes. I think this game comes down to which defense is more equipped to slow down the opposing mobile quarterback. I like the LSU um, group of linebackers with Jacob Phillips, uh, Kalevon Chason, and I especially like their secondary with Fulpit, Del- or, uh, Fulton, Delpit, and freshman Derek Stingley. I think that they'll be uh, physical and athletic enough to withstand Sam, Sam Ellinger as a passer and as a rusher. And I like the defensive backs against Texas's wide receivers more than I like the Texas defensive backs against LSU's group of Jefferson, Marshall, and Chase. The Longhorns are also going to be without freshman Jordan Winnington, who's out for several weeks with uh, hernia surgery, I believe it was, which is a big hit as they could use as yep. many athletes as they can muster against this Tigers defense. I like LSU and a relatively close one in this one. I have them by seven, uh, taking or knocking off uh, Texas in Texas, 27 to 20 in this one, Chappie. Yeah, um, I, I agree with a lot of your same points. And watching that game on the SEC Network yesterday on replay, man, LSU looked mm-hmm. really good. I mean, they they completely dominated. And like you said, that's a good Georgia Southern team. It's not like it was a team that lost everybody or a team that was, you know, limping into 2019. There are some high hopes for the the Eagles, and they got completely grounded by that Tiger defense. And that Tiger offense looks as explosive as I've as explosive as I've ever seen um, a bang, a Bayou right. Bengal team look. So Austin Austin should be electric for this primetime matchup. Slinging Sammy Ellinger and those receivers can play. And Keontae Ingram, their running back, averaged 7.1 yards per carry last week against La Tech. But I see the LSU Tigers having a little more lasting power and their D eventually clamping down on the still young UT offense. 
Give me that nasty LSU defense to watch the Georgia film from last year and learn from what the Bulldogs did wrong and get it right to beat Sammy and the Horns in Austin. I'm taking LSU by 10, 34-24 over ninth-ranked Texas. Okay. Well, Chappie, why don't you round up your uh, the last year three picks? Who's your last one to uh, to set us off with? All right, well, I'm going to continue for the second straight week Second straight week by looking at the Stanford Cardinal, ranked 23rd now after their win over Northwestern, traveling to the Coliseum to play USC. And USC, I've seen this um, even for most of the week. I've also seen it at USC uh, favored by a point. So we'll just call it even. It really is a toss-up game. So Stanford played in one of the most boring <laughs> games of week one in that 17-7 to backdoor cover win against Northwestern when Hunter Johnson fumbled into the end zone to cover the six-and-a-half-point spread for the favored Cardinal and ruined any uh, lives for betters right. on that game. Um, they did it, though, without looking overly impressive, Stanford, mm-hmm. that is. They seemed relatively vulnerable against the run versus Northwestern, and that's the area where the Trojans performed well last week. Vavai Malapai and Stephen Carr combined for three touchdowns as running backs for the Trojans and 190 yards, and they averaged five and nine yards per carry, respectively. So Malapai was at five yards a pop, and Carr uh, was averaging nine yards every time he uh, toted the rock. Stanford held the ball for nearly two-thirds of that game against the Wildcats last week and will be advised to do much of the same against the men of Troy, especially if K.J. Costello, their quarterback, can't go in this one after suffering a concussion against Northwestern last Saturday. They'll also be without All-American left tackle Walker Little, who has what appears to be some form of a knee injury, and that offensive line is going to have its hands full against USC's defensive ends Christian Rector and Drake Jackson, who did well against Fresno State's offensive line a week ago. Uh, Stanford quarterback... Backup quarterback Davis Mills looks to be the guy to go this week. He only completed seven of 14 passes. Now, this was a five-star recruit and a big name and a big get for Stanford, but he only passed for 81 yards in just one half of work. And though he went against a good overall Northwestern defense, there the, the question mark in that Northwestern defense was their secondary, and he didn't really put up stellar numbers against them. So maybe we chalked it up to Mills underachieving in his first outing. Um The Trojans gave up 202 yards rushing, but 88 of that came from Fresno State's quarterback, Jorge Reyna, making his first start. So really that puts him down to just running for or giving up 140-some yards against uh, the opposing run offense. So Stanford veteran running backs Cameron Scarlett and Dorian Maddox got the bulk of the carries, but don't be surprised to see freshman Austin Jones and maybe even fellow freshman Nathaniel Pete to add some of the totes of the rock in this one. USC will turn to freshman Caden Slovis to run Graham Harrell's offense since JT Daniels is now out for the year with an ACL injury. And it's a shame, too, because his first half numbers, he only threw two incompletions, um, threw a couple of touchdowns. He looked really good. He was getting the ball out quickly, and that offense was humming. So Slovis, when he came in, completed six of eight passes, which is respectable, no touchdowns, and he did throw an interception that stemmed from what you could call a bad decision and gave the Bulldogs a fighting chance for a comeback. Still, he looked to be cool back there and throws a pretty deep ball. What he's got to do is make use of his outstanding core of receivers and his two underappreciated backs behind him to help steer the Trojan horse. Now, USC led by 18 in the second half last week against Fresno and could have led by even more had Daniels not turned it over twice in the red zone. So that score could have been even wider, and I could have friggin' covered the spread <laughs> um, had they done so. Um but yet, I think that Northwestern just played an ugly game against the Cardinal, and I, I don't know that Stanford necessarily dominated the way that some people might think. I think that Northwestern just came out flat. There's a lot of potential speed bumps ahead for both teams, which makes this game even more important for both. So with that said, give me the Trojans at home by a field goal. I'm taking USC 24-21 over Yep, Stanford. and I'm going to echo your sentiments. I, I think that last week was more so the ineptness of Northwestern's offense than uh, things a sign of things to come for that Stanford defense. Um, I don't think that USC is going to have a quarterback that throws 6-17 of 17 with two picks and 55 yards this week. I think that uh, Slovis comes in and, and <laughs> performs a little better than what Hunter Johnson did in that ugly uh, debut that he had. I think that... Um, especially if KJ Costello can't go for Stanford. I think that that hurts Stanford more than JT Daniels uh, being out for USC in this one, because the group of USC receivers can make almost any quarterback in the country look good. In my opinion, I liked uh, USC in this one as well. 
I'm a, I like them uh, a little more than you do um, in this one at home. I, I'm going to have them um, 30 to 23 in this one, Chappie. Okay. Uh, let's quickly round out uh, our look at week two. Do you have any trip up game or any upset that you're going to keep an eye on? Whether you call the upset or not, it might even be close. Biff, do you have any any game? Yeah, um, real quick. I I, I like uh, Vanderbilt at Purdue. Now Purdue is uh, currently, I believe, nine and a half point favorites in this one, um, and I'm not sure or, or nine and a half, seven maybe, uh, depending on when you're looking at it. Yeah, I think I saw it a little higher. Yeah, it's if it's been anywhere from between seven. Okay. And, and nine um, and but but either way, I like Vanderbilt outright in this one. Uh, Purdue already had their trip up game against Nevada last week when they squandered that thirty-one seventeen point lead, um, and then allowed two scores in the last minute to lose that game. Uh, but I I just can't trust Elijah Sindelar, uh, or Sindelar as we saw, um, how he lost that game for Nevada last week. Vanderbilt didn't come close to Georgia like I thought that they could, but this Purdue defense is is one that the Commodores' uh, high-flying offense could take advantage of. The Purdue defense recorded only one sack and didn't force any turnovers. Their linebackers are talented, but I think Keyshawn Vaughn's going to be a problem for them. I also think Riley, Riley Neal has a bounce-back big game in this one. Not only does Vandy cover the spread, they went outright 31-24 in my book. I also like Cal at Washington, called it before the season started. I'm a little nervous about oh, that one because Jacob Eason looked really, really good in their opener. Uh, but look out for that Cal secondary. And Chris Brown ran for almost 200 yards last week as well for Cal. Um, another game that I like, look out for the Ohio Bobcats at Pitt. I think that they could knock off the uh, Panthers to um, open their season 2-0. and Yep. I like those. Um, not so sold on the Cal game. I could see Vanderbilt uh, going to West Lafayette and winning outright, but uh, a pissed off Jeff Brom is usually a dangerous uh, animal to deal with. So I'm going to stay away from that one as well. I wouldn't be surprised if Andy did it, but I, you know, uh, I'm going to go ahead and say that Purdue gets it done in that one. Um, and I do like Frank Solich and his Bobcat team to go to Heinz Field and continue what Virginia did to Pitt last week and uh, continue to take it to them. So I would love to see Ohio start off 2-0. Uh, I really like Frank Solich and that team. Um, my uh, my upset game to watch uh, so is um, FAU, Florida Atlantic, getting 10 points against UCF in Boca Raton, which is the home field for the Owls. Now, this is a game that was back and forth in the first half last year until Mackenzie Milton and that UCF offense took over and put the Owls in the barn. But FAU got shell-shocked early against Ohio State and then put 21 on the Buckeyes and never really made any mistakes. They only caught, or they only created one turnover or only gave up one turnover. They just couldn't execute on the road against one of the top five best teams in college football right now in the Buckeyes. Perhaps that was a wake-up call. UCF played Florida A&M at home on a Thursday night. Not exactly a tune-up game with all the necessary matching variables. They're trying to figure out a quarterback right now as Brandon Wimbush got the start, but freshman Dylan Gabriel looked really good throwing three touchdowns last week, and Josh Heupel said that both quarterbacks are going to play. So that might uh, be a little bit of a hindrance for that UCF offense going up against FAU in what is budding into a, a, a mini rivalry. Now, FAU returned a lot of their offensive production from last year and have that kind of cavalier attitude about them that they're not going to be intimidated by this new UCF team without Milton, who's trying to handle the new mystique and expectations. I'm not certain the Owls will pull the win, but I see this one being played close, and they play that kind of owl, dirty bird style of play that could get to the heads of the UCF players. Plus, I really think that the Dorian, the Hurricane Dorian impact will be a motivator for these owl players, as Boca Raton is right in the path of that storm and could be motivating the minds of these FAU players. So um, I'm... I know this is vanilla. I'm not going to go ahead and call the FAU upset. I think that they will cover and stay within 10 of the Knights, but I would not be surprised at all if the Owls get it done and knock off number 17. Yep. I, don't, I don't mind that pick at all, especially um, with that potential quarterback controversy. And for me, as, as much as I dislike saying this, because Brandon Wimbush is a heck of a teammate, I didn't think that it was if he was going to lose a starting job, but more so when. Uh, I'm a little surprised that it's taken yeah. – this short of amount of a time. Uh, but I, I think that you could see him replaced uh, sooner than later for sure. Right. 
Um, a couple against the spread beaters that I I am convinced are probably going to happen. Tulane is getting 18 points playing at Auburn. I think Auburn's going to be on yep. that hangover after coming back and beating Oregon in, in thrilling fashion. I'm with you. I'm not sold on Bo Nix being that game breaker just yet. I think that we could see some mistakes. And don't be surprised to see Willie Fritz's boys um, hang around this Auburn team. A lot of them are from Louisiana. Some of them are former LSU transfers, and they don't necessarily like the Auburn Tigers. So I, I think Tulane will definitely cover the 18 points at Auburn. I think Auburn wins close because uh, they're playing at Jordan-Hare, but I think Tulane uh, beats the spread there. And our mighty Chippewas are getting 35 points against Wisconsin. If I've learned anything from Wisconsin, it's that um, they don't cover – large spreads very well when they're at home against um you know doormats like the the cmu <laughs> chippewas so that's a lot of points to lay down to a cmu offense that put up 529 total yards of offense last week and has playmakers at running back wide receivers and a former quarterback who was at tennessee and houston and quentin dormady he threw for over 350 yards last week three touchdowns zero interceptions I'm just saying the Chips have a history of beating the spread against Big Ten bullies, so I'm going to call the Chippewas to cover the third. And they've already matched last year's win total, so they're flying high, Chappie. I think that you're right. I think they could stay within that 35-point spread. That's right. Fire up, Chips. So, okay, that covers week two, but just part of it. Remember, the weekend starts on Friday with three Power 5 opponents in action, but the marquee matchup will be Marshall going to the Smurf turf to play Hank Bachmeyer, Robert Mahomes, Chase Weaver, and 24th-ranked Boise State, fresh off their win <laughs> damn it, over Florida State. Then we've got Saturday games. Wait, only two days of college football this weekend? Seems Bill? like a crime, Chappie. I know, yeah, we got screwed. Uh, again, <laughs> damn it. Uh, oh, well, I guess we'll take it and we'll gear up for more this time next week. So be sure to follow Bip and I throughout the season as we recap the major events from each college football weekend. Combined with our weekly picks of the week, and what's to come in the games ahead. So if you want to be more informed than the other guys and maybe even make it pay off for you in one way or another, continue to follow us here on a bowl full of chips. I'm at champion underscore lit, and he is at BFC BIP. So check us out on Twitter to get our picks in print in case you can't listen until later. And when you do listen, if you haven't already, subscribe, share, rate, and review, and be sure to send us your remarks as well, positive or negative. That's all for us tonight. I'm I am Bip. Chappie. And that's all we wrote for the week two trip. But if you're ready to ship and fully equipped, don't just watch the clips. Get the script from Chappie Skip and his brother man, Bip. Keeping it hit by the bowlful, bowlful of chips. We are out. Bowlful of chips.